Bob Lawson, good to have you back on the show. Hey, Matt, good to be here. Or should I call you Dr. Bob Lawson? You should always call me doctor. Or just Dr. Bob. Dr. Um, Bob. Um, so we, we planned on having this conversation. I, I feel like we even talked about this like a year ago when we were drinking beer and talking about the, the, the sort of data intersection between beer and freedom or socialism and bad beer. Um, but that, and there was like a anecdotal truth to that. Um, having tried to do the beer freedom index, I, I don't think I can do it with the rigor that, that you do it in your professional career, but, but I definitely want to talk about your, your, your primary project, the economic freedom index of the world, which you've been doing for how many years now? I started working on it in 1990. So 30 years, yeah. uh, I was a graduate, I was 12 years old. I was a graduate student. Uh, it was my whole career has been working on this doggone yeah. index. And it was you and Dr. Dr. Gortney. Yeah, Jim Gortney was a professor of mine at Florida State, and he went off to some conference, and uh, it was great for me because he was gone for a week and didn't bother me. As a, you know, he was my boss. Yeah. And he came back and he said, "I just met Milton Friedman." I'm like, "Oh, that's really cool, man." And he says, "Guess what? We're going to do an economic freedom index." I'm like, "What? We're going to? There's no internet. This is 1990, so we're digging in the bowels of the Florida State Library trying to find data." And we cobbled an index together, and one thing led another. Thirty years later, I'm still doing it. So. Yeah. Did did you have any idea of how difficult this actually is to to measure things in an objective way? It's brutal. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, like our first index, I think we had eleven variables in seventy countries. I mean, now we have forty variables in one hundred and sixty countries or something. So, uh, but yeah, at at first, I mean, it was just like, how do you measure freedom? It's just this amorphous, vague thing. And so it, it turned out to be a lot more difficult. Well, it was actually, it was as difficult as we thought it was going to be. We knew there was a reason no one had done one before. Yeah. Because it's really hard. Um, so we, we, we gave it the old college try, but you know, we, we, that was precisely right. We just said, you know, every measurement tool ever created is, is, is faulty. You know, the thermometer in this room isn't a precise reading of the temperature, but it's good enough. Yeah. So good enough was our goal. Like yeah. we want to do an economic freedom index. It's just good enough. So the, are you suggesting that this was actually Milton Friedman's idea? Yeah, actually it was. Oh, that's, uh, Milton, that's cool. Milton Friedman and Michael Walker, who was the founder of something called the Fraser Institute in Canada, yeah. they uh, decided that someone should do an economic freedom index. So they held a conference. They invited Jim. Jim said, well, I'll do it. And, of course, when Jim says, I'll do it, what he meant is, I will do it. Because this is, I was this is what trickle-down economics actually precisely means. precisely what it is, yeah. So I remember him clearly because he came to my office. This is, you know, graduate school is a little hierarchical. Yeah. Usually you got called to their offices. But Jim came to my office, which was like, that's an important day. So he was really excited about the project. And uh, he's still, still working on it with me. So the, uh, I watched a, a talk that you gave on this. And, and ultimately you're looking at a set of criteria that we'll go through. But you're, you're basically comparing Adam Smith's idea of natural liberty with Marx's idea of socialism, communism, whatever you want to call that. Um, talk, talk about that difference, because before there was this word capitalism, there was Adam Smith, and he had a very different conception of what that was. Yeah, I mean, Smith didn't use the word capitalism. In fact, Marx was one that really popularized that term. Smith called it a system of natural liberty, and today we would use other words normally, but uh, he meant private property, markets, competitive markets. He was a big opponent of monopolies. Uh, in, in his day, monopolies were usually granted by the king. The king yeah. would say, hey, you're the only guy that can sell shoes or something. You'd be the, the royal charter shoe company. 
And he was very much opposed to monopolies. He wanted to see free and open and unfettered markets. He wanted, and he had this crazy idea that you should trade with the French. Like, you know, England and France had had, you know, bitter wars for centuries. And this crazy Scotsman is up there writing books saying, hey, we should trade with those guys. That's a tougher sell than uh, us trading with China right in, now. In many ways, absolutely. We haven't had any hot wars with China in my memory. And yeah. so Korea, I guess. But, um, you know, so, so yes, myth of this audacious argument in his era. Um, many of the ideas are still pretty crazy. A lot of people still think the idea of free trade is, is a nutso idea. Uh, but that was Smith's idea, set of ideas. The question is, how do you put a number on it? That was our goal. Our goal was to try to put a number, you know, seven, six, eight. Um, there are a lot of dimensions to the problem, so you got to get a lot of numbers and sort of average them all up and stuff. So, um, but that was the goal, was to try to put a number on how Adam Smithy a country is. Um, we call it economic freedom now. I think it's the best term in today's lingo to use. I don't want to use the word capitalism. It carries a lot of baggage. Uh, I think economic freedom is a really good descriptor for what we're talking about. Your freedom to buy, sell, hire, fire, import, export, go about your economic life without much interference. Yeah. The, uh, the criteria for that, and you know, this, this is relevant today because we're still having this argument about, and unfortunately we're saddled with this word capitalism, and I, I think it does have tremendous baggage, and, and freedom isn't really about capital accumulation. It's about choosing for yourself, yeah. um, which is a different thing. And one of the side effects of that is the ability to accumulate capital and invest. And those are good things, but this isn't about capital accumulation per se. But we're having this debate, um, this never-ending debate. It's the same debate that Adam Smith had about you know socialism versus capitalism. And, and, and Bernie still points to Scandinavia as what he really means by that. I'm not sure he's always said that. It, like it, it used to be when he was honeymooning in the Soviet Union that that was actually a cool thing. But right. He's like, nah, I don't mean that anymore. But so, like, why should people care about where their country is ranked? Um, does this does this matter in, in human terms? Well, I mean, as a researcher, as an academic, what I really think we can do with this these index, this index, is help settle that debate. Because you know, just as sure as you are about Adam Smith being right, and I'm sure Adam Smith is right too. Yeah. Just as sure as we are about Adam Smith being right, people like Bernie Sanders are pretty sure Marx is right. And we've been butting heads on this for 150 years, and we're not really convincing the Bernie Sanders of the world that Adam Smith is right, and they're not doing a very good job of convincing me that Marx is right. So rather than just keep butting heads and, and, and sometimes yelling and screaming at each other. Yeah, we're just yelling you know, past each other. I, I, I am hoping that maybe if we just throw some numbers on the table, like, hey, yeah. hey, guys, can we stop pointing each other at each other and calling each other commies or pinkos or capitalist pigs or whatever? Can we stop the name calling for just 45 seconds and look at this chart? Yeah. Because the chart shows Adam Smith is right. I mean, that's, that's the, the punchline at the end of the day is now that we have an economic freedom index, now that I know countries like Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, even the United States are more economically free and countries like Congo, Venezuela are less economically free. And guess what? When you look at countries at the top of our list, the Adam Smith type countries, boy, they look pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and that should, at least if you're an honest Marxist, uh, that should give you some pause. You should have to slow down and say, wait, maybe I got to think harder. Maybe I'm, Maybe that Marx thing isn't as good as I thought it was, because it certainly doesn't correlate with a, with, with a lot of really good outcomes. 
And, and by the way, like if if you don't care about economics and and you care about human beings, there's there is a direct correlation in your data between economic freedom, prosperity, and health, and lifespan. Like, yeah. how long do you live? How well do you live? Um, these are questions that should matter regardless of your ideology or how you voted in the last election. I, I hope. Like, if we don't agree on that, then we really don't have a debate because. Um, yeah. This is this is ultimately about individual humans and their ability to to thrive. Well, that's why I said honest Marxist because yeah. I think if you are an honest Marxist, you should care about human flourishing. Marx, at his core, was a materialist. He wanted to see people live better material lives. He wanted their condition on this planet to be better, and he thought socialism, then communism, and all that would would deliver those goods. Yeah. Um, so if you're an honest Marxist and you still want to see human beings live better on this planet, then that the kind of data that we're talking about, life expectancy, health data, you know, all of that should be the stuff you care about. Yeah. And this data is it's a different critique than the wall we run into when when we're debating so-called democratic socialism with the new socialists who who when you point to Venezuela, you point to the Soviet Union, you point to North Korea, they're like that's not real socialism. Yeah. We want it to be democratic. We want it to be bottom-up, I guess. I don't know if they would use that phrase. but No, they do. They, they call it bottom-up or socialism from below. Is yeah. One of the terms of art uh, you sometimes hear. And to me, that's a bit of a contradiction. But, but we're not saying that in, in this case, we're in, like when we try to refute that, we're like, it always turns out the same. It always centralizes power. It always gets into the hands of the wrong people, and it always goes wrong. And every time we've tried it, it's, it's gone that way. Um, this is a set of institutions and policies that are contrary to the socialist agenda, the opposite, every single one of them, that has nothing to do with questions about political power. And like, you know, if Stalin wasn't such a bad guy, it wouldn't have gone that way right. kind of thing. It's like you say, it's, it's an attempt to be objective and use data. And I should point out, I, I think it's true that almost all of your data is government data. It's Oh, yeah. I mean, most of it, I mean, world or, or quasi-government, World Bank, IMF, yeah. which or, it wouldn't exist without governments. Uh, we do get some private data. PricewaterhouseCoopers gives us some tax data because they, they have clients that care about income taxes. So they have this great tax database. Uh, and then the World Economic Forum, which is sort of a big NGO. Quasi, and they're, pri they're private nominally, but they're a you know, nonprofit. So we do get some. But not but, like crazy but, libertarian but or yeah, conservative most, sources. Most of the data, we're talking about tariff rates. We get them from, you know, World Trade Organization. Yeah. Again. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're dealing with uh, these normal data. I mean, anybody, I, I mean, I, I, if I'm being honest, I, I tell people, like, anyone could do my job. Just go out and get the same data I put, I get, put it in your computer and, you know, turn the crank and you'll have an economic freedom index of your own. It's, I'm not making any data up uh, at all. Yeah. Um, so uh, it is kind of funny, though, we're um, we're using sort of socialist organizations to, as the providers of our data. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, data is kind of a socialist enterprise. I mean, yeah. there, there, there is some private data collection in agencies out there, but, you know, most of it is governments. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the criteria that you use. Like, like what are the, the benchmarks that you compare apples to apples if you go across all these countries? Well, I don't think we have enough time, but let me give you the sort of the the big picture. Yeah, the top uh, line ones. You know, uh, there's basically five areas of the index, and to do well, to be sort of what what the sort of what would Adam Smith do uh, version of, of the data, 
Uh, the first area is how big is the government? And I mean, in a tax and spend sense, like how much money are they taking from people and then spending uh, or borrowing if, if, if they borrow the money? But how big is the government in that fiscal sense? Uh, that's, a, that's one fifth of the index. Um, countries like uh, Sweden score very poorly because they have, I think, the highest taxes in the world, highest government spending in the world. Uh, and then on down, the, so the, the Adam Smith, he wrote a whole chapter in The Wealth of Nations. You probably read it when you were in grad school. Um, you probably read it when you were in high school. What am I kidding? Um, <laughs> this is why I couldn't get dates in high school. Exactly. Um, so uh, he wrote a whole book. And, you know, Adam Smith didn't, did not have a, a, lot of, a lot of good to say about what the government should do. I mean, the government should, like, build roads and bridges maybe some schools. Oh, yeah, cops and judges and maybe a keep, national... Keep the French out. Yeah, keep the French from invading. Uh, but other than that, is, you know, he didn't have daycare centers on his list. He didn't have a food and drug administration on his list. There was just the, the things that we do. I mean, our government's an order of magnitude larger than what Adam Smith wanted it to Did do. Did Adam Smith anticipate so, mask mandates? I'm pretty sure he didn't. Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember anything about infectious diseases in the wealth of nations. Uh, no. Um, he was a polymath. I bet you he wrote about it somewhere, though. Uh, so that one one fifth of the index is just how big is the government, and um, the next part is the property rights part, and it's it's basically how secure are you in your property, and it could be your real property, like your real estate. Uh, one of the key property rights about owning real estate is the ability to sell it. So one of the variables is how easy or cumbersome does the government make it to, for me to sell you my property? There are a lot of government rules. If you ever bought a house or land, you know. Uh, and so there's indexes out there measuring how, how, how streamlined that process is. Uh, but there's also things like just how many, uh, uh, you know, how many days does it take to settle a contract dispute? So if you, if I pay you money and you don't do a job and I sue you, how long is it going to take the court government court to settle that? So that's one fifth is basically property rights. It's more or less the, how good the legal system works in settling disputes, handling transactions. The third area is money. It's basically inflation. Um, it's about how safe is your bank account from inflation, basically. You know, governments control the money supply. The Federal Reserve in the United States, the Bank of England controls it there. And so they have the ability, if they print too much of that money, they can just, just devastate your, your, your savings. Uh, that's never really happened in a bad way in the United States. But if you were Argentinian, you know exactly what it's happened several times in your lifetime already. Yep. Uh, the, the, our government of Argentina just decides to print gobsmack billions and trillions of p p pesos. And next thing you know, the pesos you saved were worthless. And by, by the way, that's a, so, that's a very insidious tax on uh, working people. It's, it's incredible. It's the most regressive tax in, in many ways. Um, it also devastates credit markets. I yep. mean, nobody, every, every building... Every business that's ever been built was built with borrowed money. And if, if you don't have a functioning capital market, you will not have a good economy. And you can't have a functioning capital market if people are afraid of the value of money in the future. And that's what inflation it means. So that's the four, third area. The fourth area is trade. Like can I buy and sell with foreigners? Uh, import. And so we tariff rates from the World Trade Organization. We have some measures of quotas, things like that, capital controls. Kind of boring, mind-numbingly boring sets of data, you know, how many capital controls there are. It strikes me for, for all of the protectionist rhetoric and every politician in almost every country yeah. in the world has that, that there is generally free trade in the world. Is that fair? Or? Uh, well, it's certainly trending in the right direction. I mean, one of the things that's happened in the last 30, 40 years is a, one of the biggest trends is a movement towards more trade liberalization, more open trade. 
And we see it in our data. I mean, those numbers have really gotten better. The World Trade Organization has played a big role in convincing countries to lower their tariff rates. And no, no country wants to do it on their own, but sometimes you get the sort of, well, we'll lower our tariffs if you lower your tariff kind of, kind of deals. Yeah, yeah. That's really hard to get, get done, especially when you're dealing with hundreds of countries. Uh, but it's actually happened very successfully. Um, so those numbers have gotten better. Still a, a long way to go, to be fair. Um, the United well, States actually scores upper middle, but we're by no means are we an example of a, a highly free trade country. Yeah, it seems like there's there's been some, certainly politically there's backsliding and it upsets, yeah. it definitely upsets my Republican friends when I point out that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in many ways have exactly the same worldview when it comes to trade. It's a, yeah. it's a zero sum gain, you know, if, if they win, you lose kind of thing. And it's, um, if you took the, the rhetoric from either one of those guys and didn't ascribe it, you, you could guess either one. It's the same thing. Precisely on trade. And you know, the, the, the both parties tend to align on trade. So in the era when everyone was a free trader, so the Democrats were free traders, the Republicans were free traders. Clinton was a pretty decent free trader, as was Reagan. Uh, and then, but they're kind of going with the, with the winds of voters and stuff. So yeah. right now, neither party is particularly uh, friendly to free trade. Um, and the numbers are regressing a little bit, although the big trend is still a positive trend, um, you know, towards more liberalization. I want to get, I want to get back. I'm going to go off on a tangent here just for a second. I want to get back to COVID lockdowns and the impact that might have in future data. Yeah. But, um, one of the interesting, um, points of lockdowns is that it has been an opportunity to restrict trade and migration in a way that was not possible before yeah. COVID was this, 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 this massive threat and a lot of the protectionists in the United States were early on advocating that, that President Trump locked down far more than he did. So it's, yeah. it's, it's probably opportunism, but um, I suspect that that will have a real impact on economic performance. Well, I mean, in a very tangible way, I'm thinking of variables that I use and collect that I know are gonna be impacted by this. I mean, one of our variables is, is at the ports is how long does it take to get a container through the ports, through customs? And we know, and yep. anecdotally we know, and I'm pretty sure the data are gonna show that in a year or two when they come out, that that process has gotten a lot more cumbersome in part because of COVID, but you know, just people are home, there's like, fewer people at the docks, things just take longer. And that's like a tax. Yeah. It's like a tax on all those goods that come across the port if you slow them down. The other one is we have a variable on tr travel visas. And uh, needless to say, when you lock down the country, uh, so we captured those data about midpoint in the year. Uh, so it was more or less the height of the crisis, though. Um, and although maybe we're at a new height again, I don't know. Um, but we, we captured all the countries in the world and where what countries they had prevented travel from. And so that variable, which isn't a huge variable in the index, but that variable is going to get crushed. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, the U.S. number gets pretty bad to begin with, frankly, because we have a lot of visa requirements to start with. But we sh we flat out shut down, you know, dozens of countries and other European countries shut down, like almost everywhere. So they're gonna they're gonna get rated like on a ten point rating scale that we use. They're gonna get scores that were eights that are gonna be twos. Yeah, um, and that's and good for them. They should. I mean, you know what? They're you know maybe it's a good. Uh, by the way, my my mantra on this is that. It, Maybe it's a good policy. Maybe it's a good public health policy to stop people from traveling. Fine. That's a separate argument, whether it's a good policy or not. But it is absolutely a re restriction on your freedom. Yeah. Uh, they're, you're, they're taking away your freedom to move. 
Uh, maybe it's for a good reason. Maybe it's for a bad reason. I don't care about the good reason or the bad reason. I just care about the, the measuring of freedom part. With undebatable negative economic in, compli- in implications. Uh, probably. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. um, but it might be worth it. I mean, so someone who might be an advocate of lockdowns could say, well, it's still worth it. Well, okay, fine. That's a separate argument. Uh, my job isn't to really to, to normatively argue in favor of more freedom or less freedom. My job really as a scholar is just to measure it. Yeah. Now, of course, we know each other well enough to know that I'm also an advocate for freedom. But uh, the, the science part of it is just measuring it. Yeah. So free trade. We'll... The last one is regulation. Yeah. So how many days does it take to start a business? Hong Kong, it takes one day. Uh, I don't think it's as bad now. but Is, I re- is that still true? It's still true, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember Egypt. I think it took 300 days once or something. No, it was longer than that. It was 3,000 days. It was like several years. Yeah. To, to start a business. And 42, they, they count the number of, of procedures, number of permissions you have to get to start a business. And it's a real simple business. We're not talking about an airport or something. We're just like a regular I business. I feel like it was six years or something it insane was, like it that. It was insane. Now, it's not as bad now because when this report came out, everybody freaked out and most yeah. countries have tried to fix that. But, um, you know, so yeah, we have, a, you know, how, to, how many, like that's, that's a huge freedom, my ability to start a, start a business. Uh, without a lot of interference from the government. And certainly 42 permissions that take years to, to comply um, is pretty onerous. It's like, a, it's not, I mean, that's much more important than taxation. Uh, one of the things I've learned is that taxation is a really big infringement. When the government takes money out of my pocket on April 15th, that's a big infringement on my freedom. But for most people in most of the world, it, that's not the kind of infringement that matters to them. It's the regulator who yeah. shows up at your store and says, oh, well, you know, your, you know, the color of your, you know, your windows is too dark or, you know, that step is not the right size or, you know, you, you don't have the right kitchen equipment and all of that. Um, and real reality, half the time, that's just a shakedown for a bribe, but right. which is another type of tax. So, um, but, but most but, people but in the less world, predictable. Yeah. Most people in the world, it's not taxes that they, they lose sleep about. Now, if yeah. you're a Swede or an American, you probably do worry about taxes, but your typical person in Congo isn't worried about his tax bill as much as he's worried about the regulatory state uh, coming after his, his freedom. Well, a lot of that activity that wouldn't be affected is sort of black market activity. And a lot of these countries we're talking about at the lower end, they're all black and gray markets where taxes don't matter because they, yeah. they just go around. That's right. And the reason they're black and gray markets so much is because you can't be legal. Yeah. Like you don't have a legal title to your farm. So, you know, if you want to sell it to someone, you just work out a deal on the side that has all kinds of problems, as you know, because you can't enforce it in court and, and, and uh, you can't borrow against it, you know, all these problems. So, but yeah, but black and gray markets are a result of the over-regulation that people face. They, they, they like, I can't come, like no one in Egypt actually went through those 42 procedures. That was the legal procedures, 42 procedures, years and years. No one ever did that. Yeah. Either bribe your way through it, or just open your business illegally and hope and pray you don't get caught. The spark to the Arab Spring was a regulatory shakedown, where yeah. where a cop was um, um, target shaking down a, a local vendor who ended up like they took everything he had and he ended up setting himself on fire over it. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's like it, people. I, I think you know, in the United States, we argue about taxes so much, we sort of take for granted. The predictability of of the rule of law, yeah, 
you know, regulatory stuff is, is less predictable in the United States, but probably relative to the rest of the world is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if you want to open a business, you know the procedures. You got to go to got to go to the county courthouse and do this or do that. You know, if you want to sell some property, there's, you know, you hire a real estate expert and they handle the process for you. It's 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 a pain in the neck and it is like a tax, uh, but it's pretty known, knowable. You know, yeah. you don't get to, now. It's getting getting worse. I think. I think if you talk to business uh, people in the United States, they will say that there is now more uncertainty. Like you never know when a new inspector is going to come and say exactly the opposite of what the last inspector said, which yeah. is which is a, the worst of our worlds, really, is not knowing what the rules are. And that's becoming more of a problem, I think, and at least anecdotally you hear that, and we see it in the data a little bit, too. So I'm watching, uh, and, and you may need a category for the arbitrary dictates under COVID, because mm -hmm. there's a bar owner in, in New York that just got hauled off to jail because... Um, they keep changing the rules, and not just yeah. little rules, like whether or not you get to be open kind of rules, and the the arbitrariness, and like the, the, there doesn't seem to be much constitutional constraint on this kind of behavior at the, the, the city level, the state level. Um, eventually, maybe the courts are going to catch up. They've been yeah. throwing some of these things out, but but it already happens, and I, I don't know how you measure that because it's it yeah. throws all that other stuff out the window. Yeah, and, and you know, We've seen massive breakdowns in the rule of law. I mean, I've seen it. Uh, you've seen it. Uh, restaurants and bars is a great example where, well, are you a restaurant or a bar? Well, we serve alcohol and we serve food. Well, you know, for periods of time, they were shutting down bars, but letting restaurants stay open. So yeah. all of a sudden, bars were becoming restaurants. Yeah. But, but really, they weren't. So what that meant was we were not following the rules now. All of a sudden, the city permit people we're giving bars restaurant licenses. Yeah. And I was approved, I, I, I wanna go to the bar, so that's great, fine, happy with that. But from a rule of law point of view, that means that some, and some people got them and some people didn't get them. Mm -hmm. you know? So we get unevenness in the application of those rules and that's precisely what, what we, in the Economic Freedom Index, it's precisely the kind of breakdown in the rule of law that we would penalize you for. Um, I'm hoping that if our data are doing what we think they're doing, we should see it in, in, a, in two years. Um, you might want to mention that we're always two years behind. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we get into the uh, so, rankings, I want to point out that yeah. this data is essentially from 2018. Yeah, that's right. Our latest data are two years old. Um, but uh, one, one more one more COVID sidebar. I was uh, in Austin a couple weeks ago and driving past this uh, bar that had a big banner out front. We are a restaurant now. Right. And I, th I thought about it yesterday because the... Uh, the mayor of Austin, I hope I don't butcher the story because I'm doing it off memory. The, ma the mayor of Austin was caught issuing a new stay at home no matter what order, which he filmed from a beach house in Cabo. That's awesome. That's just beautiful. Yeah. I feel, I, I mean, like uh, there's some sort of let them eat cake or, yeah. or not drink a beer but, sort of metaphor but, there. But reclassifying these bars as restaurants is really quite a sham. I mean, yeah. The bar I go to, I will not name it, after they reopened as a restaurant, I asked my bartender, so what was your uh, food? He says, well, it's 5%. We were 95% alcohol and 5% food. And that was after pushing food because they were now you know, they want to try to sure. make themselves a restaurant. So they were pushing the food hard, and it was still 95.5. Um, so it was a sham. Yeah. Um, again, I was happy to see my bar open again and see my bartenders and my friends. But... Um, that's not really what the rule of law is about. It's about setting up a, a rule, a regulatory rule, and then having it applied evenly and fairly. 
Um, and, and unfortunately, when the rules get disconnected, though, from what we think is just, um, people break the rules. Yeah. Uh, and so you, the rule of law breaks down when the rules themselves are not just. It's probably, it's probably a lagging indicator that there's a fundamental problem when, when um, proprietors and consumers are reclassifying a bag of pork rinds as a proper meal. <laughs> exactly. Although I would have always thought that that was the case. But this I was is Texas. Uh, so that's absolutely food. So, so let, we'll put that into your measurements for, for next year too. But, so let's, let's, uh, let's pivot and actually talk about the rankings. Um, and one of the reasons it's important to, to point out that this is 2018 data is that you're number one forever has been Hong Kong. Hong Kong's been number one every year for which we have data, which now goes back to the 50s. Uh, I think Hong Kong shows up in 70, but f from a data point of view, uh, they've always been number one. It's not even been a close call. I mean, I probably didn't need to do an economic freedom index to know it. I mean, they have, no ta they have a top tax rate of 15%. They have no tariffs, 0.0 uh, tariffs. Um, you know, no inflation. I mean, it takes one day to start. I mean, every category, pretty much, Hong Kong is at or near the top of our of our economic freedom scores. So they average out to be number one. It's not. And Hong Singapore is number two. But you're right. Um, our data are two years old. It takes you know, it takes more or less a year for whoever I get the data to get it from to get it, and a year for me to get it from them. And we have to publish this. You know, so we're always lagging. Uh, and the big question mark for us is what happens to Hong Kong? Uh, next year, here in a, in a matter of a few months, I'll start collecting the data for 19. And the big protests and, and, and crackdown began more or less the middle of 19. So um, internally, we're all kind of curious as, as to what's going to happen. Um, but we just put the numbers in. If the numbers come back and say in 2019, Hong Kong was still number one, that's what we're going to publish. Uh, I suspect their numbers will go will get worse. Yeah. Um, it's in that legal area and property rights area, and the security of, of the rule of law, all of that breaking down, and, and the reaction of the government to the crisis. You know, but a lot of things won't change. It's not like they raised taxes. Uh, tariff rates didn't change. The inflation rate hasn't gotten any worse. Uh, so most of the things that we measure for Hong Kong aren't going to be different. But that second area, that rule of law, property rights, that area will pick it up. I'm pretty sure. But at the end of the day, it's it's whatever they whatever the ratings are, whatever they are. My my friend who runs Freedom House, um, we we had a similar conversation yeah. with him on this show, and they rank essentially civil liberties. Yeah. I'm not even sure they say it that way. They call it, they talk about liberal democracy, but it's freedom of speech, freedom of association. Um, you know, can you vote? Um, can can women be in the workplace? And and maybe that's more economic. And and I know you guys look at that too, but. Um, you guys explicitly don't measure any of that stuff. Yeah, in the index itself, we're silent on on political rights, so voting, um, competitive elections, free and fair elections, all of that, and also civil liberties. We're silent on that. Uh, it's not because we don't care about those things. I care deeply about those things. I, I really, really enjoy my civil liberties. And uh, But one of the research questions that we're interested in, and from the very beginning, though, was what is the kind of nexus, what's the connection between our economic liberties and our civil and political liberties? Is there a correlation? Is there a correlation, or how does that correlation work? A lot of ink's been spilled. Friedrich Hayek wrote a whole book, The Road to Serfdom, basically about this. Uh, most of, of Capitalism and Freedom by, by Milton Friedman was about this. 
So a lot of people have ideas about how political freedom, democracy, civil liberties like freedom of speech goes goes or doesn't go with like more, frankly, more mundane freedoms like buying and selling stuff. That's the stuff we, I care about. Um, and But we didn't want to put that stuff in our index, even though we care about those things as well, because we wanted to separate them. And, and then once we're done with that, we can kind of, you know, play the empirical games and say, hey, do countries that have more economic freedom, do they tend to be more democratic? Do they tend to have better freedom of speech? Or are women treated better or worse? These kinds of questions that are not normally considered economic questions. We wanted to know how the economics and the civil and political side played together or didn't play together. And there appears to be a correlation. Oh, it's correlation. It's very strong. Yeah. Uh, most of the countries that score well on my index uh, score highly on Freedom House's political rights, civil liberties indexes. Uh, there are some minor oddballs, and Hong Kong is one of them. Hong Kong is the most economically free, and they're far from the most politically free. Um, they have something of a little election thing for a local parliament, but essentially, even under the British, there was a British governor who really ran things. And, and now the, uh, the chief executive, with a lot of input from Beijing, is, is running things. So they don't really have an authentic demo liberal democracy. Yeah. And they had civil liberties of a pretty good order until very recently. But you know, after dozens and dozens of journalists disappear, or get beat up or lose their jobs and newspapers and, and you know after all the crackdown that we've seen their civil liberties have also gone away so hong kong's an oddball most countries are more like sweden or like the united states like we're pretty high on the economic freedom index and we're pretty high on the political freedoms civil liberties you know we haven't completely lost those um so so and then at the other end there's like places like venezuela today where they're low yeah. on both but there are these weird ones where you get a little bit of a disconnect. And those well, Singapore is a little weird too. Right? Yeah, they're very weird. And that's, um, is that number two still? They're number two. So yeah. Hong Kong and Singapore are one and two on our index. And neither one is a stellar example of, of, a, of a liberal democracy. Um, I would have said Singapore was worse until recently. Yeah. Although I don't know that I'd say that today. Um, you know, a friend of ours, Chris Lingle, I'm sure he's a friend of yours, uh, yeah. was kicked out of Singapore because he wrote an op-ed. So, I mean, that's not that's not civil liberties, right? When you can write a op-ed. Sounds like and, something you'd do, by the way. Well, yeah. yeah. yeah he, you know, he's never been back as far as I know. Yeah. So, um, so, so, but most countries, there's a connect. There's a connection. Uh, so it correlates very well. I'm kind of interested in those oddballs. Like, ooh, you're, you're you know, a country that's just generally free or generally unfree isn't very interesting. Uh, a uh, country that's free in one way but not free in another dimension—that's interesting. Like, mm -hmm. how, how is that? Is that an equilibrium? Can you? Is that? Are you going to stay like that forever? Are there tensions? And I have to say, uh, even though I've been looking at this for now all of my career, um, I'm, I'm not sure I know the answers. It's complicated. Milton Friedman wrote a wrote a line in, in his one book. It says, "The relationship between political freedom is uh, what is it? Complex and by no means unilateral." And he was right. It's it's not a simple story. Uh, the good news, though, is if you are worried about democracy, if you care about democracy, if you care about your civil liberties, you don't really need to worry about economic freedom upsetting them. The general correlation is positive. But the opposite might also be true, that if you care about democracy and free speech and civil liberties and the right to marry whoever you want, economic freedom may be an important aspect to getting there. Yeah, that other that other oddball combination. So Hong Kong is a combination with high economic freedom, but not great political freedom, as is Singapore. The other oddball would be like democratic Venezuela. So Venezuela of 20 years ago, 
15 years ago. Venezuela was a socialist country. They had nationalized the means of production. Uh, not all of the means, but sufficiently large swaths of the Venezuelan economy were under direct owner, ownership and control of the Venezuelan government. We would call that a socialist country. They called it socialist. Uh, but they were democratic. You know, Chavez was elected democratically. I think Maduro's first election was maybe sort of not completely corrupt. Yeah. But what's happened over time as the Venezuelan economy has tanked, because it's a socialist economy, it, the economy doesn't function well, uh, people got upset with the government and the government realized, oh my gosh, if we let people speak freely on the newspapers and, or in the, in the televisions and if we let them vote freely and fairly, we're going to lose. So what's happened, as you know, in the last decade is the Venezuelan democracy has collapsed. Um, there is no longer free and fair elections. Political parties have been shut down. Opposition leaders are arrested. Um, you know, voters are literally told that if you don't vote for uh, the, the ruling party, your ration card, which is how you are going to survive the next month, uh, your, food. your food will get will get taken away. And so we don't have an authentic liberal democracy anymore. Um, they did once. And I'm pretty sure that um, that combination, that, that oddball combination is not sustainable. There's no country uh, that has ma managed to control its economy at a high level, like a socialist level, that has maintained a democracy. Yeah. Most of them never even had it. Like, you know, the Soviets never even made a pretense of, of democracy. So they never even tried to have a democracy with their, with their socialist economy. Uh, but to its credit, Venezuela tried to have socialism with, with democracy, but eventually they had to give up the democracy. Are you saying that democratic socialism is unsustainable? It's unsustainable. Is that what you're it's, suggesting? It's not an equilibrium. It, yeah. can't, it can't last. And the reason it can't last is because the economy will, will not perform. Yeah. And if economies don't perform, people vote the rascals out. Now, there are a couple other examples where they tried it uh, and they went the other way. So I think Israel and India are both examples. India in the 70s, Israel in the 70s. I mean, Israel was founded primarily by, by, by socialists. The Zionist movement was a socialist movement. And so uh, the Israeli economy uh, from, from day one was a heavily government-controlled economy, and it was terrible. We used to laugh about it. I'm old enough to remember, like, we would joke about the, you know, they had hyperinflation. It was like all of the, you know. And so Israel was a, a socialist-like. They weren't like Soviet Union bad, but they were a socialist country. And the economy was terrible. People were emigrating out of Israel in the 70s and 80s. And then the government said, well, We've got to fix this. Now, one way to fix it is to do the Venezuela's thing and clamp down on civil liberties to maintain power. The other way is to liberalize the economy. And India did the same thing. India liberalized their economy. Israel liberalized their economy. So now, today, they more or less match. Like, their economic freedom in Israel is pretty high. It's not like in Hong Kong, but it's pretty high. And their political freedoms are pretty high. Where, where is Israel at? Ballpark is it like the second? They're in that second. They're in the second quarter. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I think they're you know rating wise around a seven, and they're you know let's call them 70, 70th percentile. You know upper middle. Yeah. Um, you know, plenty of room for them to improve, but but you know not a basket case right. uh, by any means. But they would. I mean, in the seventies, absolutely would have been. A basket case. I mean, not Soviet Union or Mao's China bad, but absolutely, uh, you know, a three on a 10-point scale, a four on a 10-point scale, really bad. India the same way. So those countries also tried the democratic socialism thing, and they got rid of the socialism. <laughs> 
Venezuela tried democratic socialism, they got rid of the democracy. The point though is that I think democratic socialism is not a sustainable kind of combination. You gotta get rid of one or the other. Um, it's been a lot better for the countries that got rid of the socialism part, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah and hopefully, you know, without, um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to take this idea of democratic socialism seriously to see if there is something different in the mix and I can't find it yet. And I, I think this data sort of supports my notion that, that you can't be democratic in the long term and be socialist. I can imagine it on extraordinarily small scales. Um, you know, the Israeli kibbutz is, is a good example, a very, very small scale enterprise numbers and hundreds of people, maybe the largest kibbutzes were a thousand people or something, but, but, and they, they ran those things democratically. They voted on everything. Like what's going to be for dinner tonight? Like, can you imagine how, horrible that would be. But anyway, that's, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to live in these sort of voluntary, democratically run socialist places. But if you try to scale that beyond just a few people, um, it, it, it'll break down very quickly. Uh, and it always has. So I think very small scale democratic socialism, like my family's kind of a democratic socialist enterprise. We don't have prices on the refrigerator. And we kind of, we don't take votes as much, but we collaboratively decide where we go for dinner and that works. Um, you know, what kind of car we're gonna buy. These are collaborative, joint, democratic-like decisions in my household. But it's only, my household's now only two people, but you know, it's, it's not that hard to do it. But you wanna do it for a million people, 300 million people? Um, you're not gonna be able to have a, a fun, an authentic, functioning, democratic decision-making process that doesn't either horribly go wrong or, you know, um, you know again, you'll get a, you'll get a disconnect uh, with, with the performance of the economy. Um, in, in my household, I'm Hong Kong and my wife is, is communist China, so that's, that's how things function there. <laughs> She's in charge. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Probably in my household too. We like yeah. to fool ourselves, but yeah. But uh, but she's convinced me that it's not true that there's an equal and open democracy. Let's talk about. Um, so Venezuela is, is the last on the list. They're one sixty-two out of one sixty-two. Um, little footnote is we don't rate Cuba or North Korea because we don't have data. You know, I, you know, World Trade Organization, World Bank, IMF. You know, there's no data on North Korea or Cuba. Uh, so, uh, and, and we're such a data-driven index that without the data, we don't rate them. I mean, they're, they're last. I mean, North Korea should be last. Yeah. But among the countries we're able to rate, Venezuela's last. And they weren't always. I mean, uh, back in the 70s when we had numbers for them, they were in the top quarter. Um, I, so. feel like, I feel like can- cannibalism should be one of your criteria for, for whether or not your country's free. If you have to eat other people, I'm pretty sure that's a, a bad Thing. Yeah, it might yeah. be more of an outcome variable or yeah. a result, but yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's a thing in North Korea for sure, and it's yeah. it's it's sort of like is one of the worst versions of socialism is where that has happened because yeah. of its fundamental inability to produce food to feed people. Yeah, well, I mean, it's even true in Venezuela. Yeah, uh, the average Venezuelan's losing weight. Um, I mean, they're having they can't produce or import enough calories to sustain the population's weight. Yeah, yeah, they're. Um, and these are famously horrific stories, but they're eating their pets. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like to tell that story because I want people to understand in a very visceral way why economics matters because yeah. I think most people don't think about supply and demand if they're even slightly normal. Yeah. You and I are not normal, so we do these <laughs> things. Right. 
but these these things matter in terms of, of things that we do care about. Talk about the the relationship um, between health and wealth, because this is something that I think yeah. um, the the lockdowners um, are ignoring when they you know they they think that any concern about economic consequences is sort of uh, well you don't care about human life. Yeah, empirically, I mean, well, one of the one of the rhetorics I mean, before COVID, you would hear this occasional complaint: all all you guys care about is money. You don't care about things that you know, other things like what about health? What about you know, all you care about is GDP? Yeah, things like that. And well, here's the problem: GDP is the name we give to st- the stuff we have in our economy. That includes water treatment plants and sewers that get rid of our waste. That includes hospitals, the doctors that are in the nurses in those hospitals, and MRI machines. GDP is just a name for all that stuff that does, in fact, make us healthier and live longer and makes the lives more comfortable while we're there. Um, so, so GDP is just sort of a stand-in word that we have for stuff. Now, it could also be, you know, trash. It could be pornography, something else, you know, some other kind of thing that isn't very healthy maybe for long lives. But, um, you know, so I, but my point is, like, if you look at rich countries, people that have more GDP, they live longer, they're healthier, cancer rates are better, survival rates are better in every, all the, in every dimension. So there isn't really a, a uh, I, I agree that money isn't everything, but empirically, money and GDP and economic growth and, and those kinds of boring, mundane things that egghead economists like me like to talk about, they correlate really well with access to clean water uh, infant mortality and all the other sort of social, so-called social measures, and that's for good reason. How do we keep infants from dying? We build better hospitals and staff them with better nurses and doctors and provide better machinery to, you know, better incubators and all the other things we have. So that stuff that we call GDP is the stuff that we use to stay alive. Uh, so there really isn't a conflict. Um, yeah. And 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 sure enough, it turns out economically free countries have more stuff. Uh, Adam Smith is right. The wealth of the nation is in fact higher when you've got more liberty. Um, and that means they also live longer and infant mortality rates are lower and just all the, all the metrics. There's, it's one of the challenges I sometimes give students when I talk to students about this. I say, go find me a variable. Go find me a variable. Go find me a, something in the World Bank. World Bank has literally thousands of data, of data points, variables available. Go find me one good thing that correlates negatively with economic freedom or vice versa, find me a bad thing that correlates positively. And I've only found one. I actually have found one. It's obesity. Um, uh, if you look at national obesity rates, percentage of the population that's above, you know, whatever the cutoff in BMI is, uh, it turns out more economically free countries are more obese. And that's a real health problem. I mean, obesity is a real problem. Um, but given that human beings have spent most of the many, many millennia on this planet trying to get enough food in our bodies to stay alive till tomorrow. The fact that we've reached the point where the problem is that we have too much food is, but we've, we've solved all the other problems. Like infant mortality is now numbers like one per thousand births or something. It's really small numbers in in most countries. I'm I'm gonna blame in our country, government corrupted nutritional advice on that, but that's the subject for a different subject, but for a different show. But I do have friends in India who 
often tell me that the ultimate status symbol in that country where um, people on the streets are very skinny is having a big, big old belly. <laughs> like that's, that's a goal yeah. to be a little bit overweight because then you know that you're not going to starve to death. Well, that's so, true. And it was true in Europe and the United States in the 19th century. Yeah. Oh, he must be rich because yeah. he's got a, he's fat. He must be rich. Yeah. He must be productive. He's doing something right. Um, when most people were, you know, you've seen, if you've seen data on like World War II conscript, like military conscripts and, just the horrific health that many Americans were in and in, in going into the World War in World War II, and uh, you know three genera- three three decades later, the problem is oh my gosh we have diabetes you know it's, yeah. you know it's, yeah. again it's a real problem I mean obesity does carry with it serious health risks and yeah. um, but that the, the fact that our relatively free economic system has generated so much wealth that we've not solved problems that we've dramatically reduced. So many health problems. We've increased one, and 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 that's okay. I'll own that. That's the only one. I mean, out of the hundreds and hundreds of variables that I've been able to look at in the World Bank's database and all the other places, I've only found one sort of chart that that goes that looks that goes the wrong way. You know. Um, uh, so, like uh, my friends in Honduras who struggle with with real questions of hunger, they they call this uh, uh, grumbling with a full belly. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it gives you some perspective. It, it is a real problem. And I think the government has some culpability in creating it. Um, one final question, and then I want to spend a little bit of time, we're running out of time, but I want to talk about the Bridwell Center and, and where, how people can actually engage with you and your, and your stuff. Um, but our friend, I think, you know, Anthony Davies, mm-hmm. um, he posted something on Twitter a couple of days ago. Uh, pointing out that the Congressional Budget Office um, estimates that the cost of COVID and lockdowns will be $15 trillion. And that's a big number. He he tried to translate it for people. It's an inconceivably big number to me. And he said, we could buy Spain for that much money. Um, what is the impact of the United States spending $15 trillion it doesn't have on covid and lockdowns from the economic freedom index point of view um it has to be bad i mean direct spending by the government is captured in our index and that's gone up like crazy um some things will not i mean if a you know and, and by the way but, that may not but, be just government spending it may yeah. be like the the net economic yeah, loss to right so my university smu uh spent millions and millions of dollars and i our index is not going to capture that and probably it shouldn't. I mean, you know, some of that spending was legit, whatever. Uh, but the mandated spend, uh, government, sp- like tax-based spending, that's going to be in there. Uh, I mentioned the variable on on the travel visas. That's going to get hit. Um, you know, I do worry that that our index, which is a global index dealing with 162 countries, the sort of finer points of COVID, like shutting down bars and restaurants, that lockdown-type policy – that's not that's not in my index, and I don't don't know exactly how it's going to get captured. So I, I think there will be a negative consequence in our index, but I also think we may not fully capture it with the data we have. It's you know it's not like again it's not like the tariff rate changed, the income tax rates haven't changed. So the the the, the breakdown in the rule of law part that we met, we talked about a little bit earlier that should show up. How much it shows up. Um, I, for me, it's going to be 
I, I can't wait really for a year. It's going to be two years before I know though. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about, so where, where can people find the index? Um, it's a very readable and consumable product. Yeah. So the index, well, you would, I'd never heard that actually, Matt. I mean, the book is well, maybe, primarily maybe I'm a geek. 162 pages of numbers. Uh, it's, it's really not very readable. There's a front chapter that's readable, but most of the book is just tables and tables of numbers. Uh, I mean, if you want to know what, uh, you know, Senegal's top marginal tax rate is, like, it's in the book. Uh, I used to be a budget economist <laughs> that had to read CBO data, so maybe right. I'm exposing You probably my... think this is really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but it's, if you just Google Economic Freedom of the World, uh, that is our brand title, EFW, Economic Freedom of the World. But, um, and Fraser Institute in Canada is our publisher, but um, two of the four principal authors, myself and another guy, Ryan Murphy, are at SMU, where I work. Uh, and we're in this Bridwell Institute, which is a center there. And so if you go Bridwell Institute or Economic Freedom SMU, you certainly will find. So you're right website. here in the Dallas area. Talk about uh, the priorities other than so, this index yeah. for, the, for the Bridwell Center. Yeah. So the, what we institute. Do, yeah. And this is very important because institutes cost more. So yeah. Mr. Tucker Bridwell gave us a lot of money and he didn't give us center money. He gave us institute money. And yeah. in the university world, that's important. Which is why you insist on being called doctor. That's precisely right. When, uh, you're, when you're running a center, yeah. it's, it's oh, I'm just I, I was just a center a director you know, yeah. until a few months ago. Now yeah. I'm a institute director. It's much better. Yeah. Uh, this is the silliness of university pecking orders, but it's it's it does matter in my world. Uh, so we uh, we do uh, we're primarily a research shop. We do the Economic Freedom Index. Uh, we also do a state level Economic Freedom Index called Economic Freedom of North America. With uh, the main person on that is Dean Stanzel, and and he works with another person, Meg Tuzinski. She's in our office. So we're kind of an Economic Freedom Research shop. That's what we do. But if you're in the Dallas area, we do um, a lot of public facing programs. We do you know normally we do big public lectures, debates, panels two or three per semester. Um, and so, and usually we do a big annual conference, uh, which is a publicly and in, people invited from the public to attend. Um, right now everything's kind of online, which is, you know, it is what it is. But, but if anyone's out there from DFW, just, uh, it's pretty easy to shoot us an email and get on our mailing list. And, um, we, we really do one of the things aside from hard research, one of the things I want the Bridwell Institute to, to be is kind of a hub uh, for discussions about free markets and capitalism and democracy, all these kind of big, big ideas, be a hub for that discussion in the DFW area. Um, so when people think about capitalism and freedom and all this kind of stuff, they think of the Bridwell Institute in Dallas. Yeah. And hopefully give me money too, because I'm I'm an institute and Mr. Bridwell didn't give us all the money we need to operate. Um, we are, uh, so how know, do we, how do we send you checks? Oh, there's a, there's a link on the website. Uh, they take visas. And, What's, do you know the URL? I, of course no, not. Of course not. Uh, just, just Google it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so like, uh, I have to apologize. Um, unlike the last time you were in the blaze TV studio, um, you were slamming beers with Stu. Totally sober. Yeah. Uh, I've, actually the time before that I was with you and we got pretty lit too so yeah yeah well it was an empirical question about yeah. the quality of beer in north korea which turns out to be wanting let's yeah. just say that thank you sir thanks bye that was amazing where can i get more content just like that it's a great question you're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content make sure to like the video subscribe and click the bell and if you're consuming podcasts go to apple stitcher anywhere you get them i'm in Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.